everyone, and either welcome or welcome back to the Jen the Libertarian podcast. I do want to apologize for being absent last week. Um, kind of unexpected, but it was one of those kind of last minute, calling an audible, taking a week off sort of decisions. Usually I announce that before I do it, just so you know what to expect. But I am back now. Um, last week, well, not last week at this point, but the week before last, obviously we had impeachment, which ended pretty much the way we all expected it to. And kind of a weird affair. It's almost one of those things like if an impeachment happens and Donald Trump isn't here to text about it or to tweet about it, did it really happen? But yes, it happened and it went down exactly the way you think it would. Um, seven members of the GOP did vote to to convict him, which that was surprising. It's a higher number than what we expected. But overall, I mean, it's exactly what we expected. I mean, you knew he wasn't going to be convicted in the Senate because I don't know why this party is still so enthralled to this man. But it seems like House Democrats did a good job putting on their case. They had some nice AV. We saw some new video that we hadn't seen before. Uh, For a brief shining moment, we were going to have witnesses, but then Democrats caved on that, which sucks. I would have gladly have taken weeks to hear from rioters coming in there and saying, yeah, we were there because we thought Trump wanted us there and he told us to be there. So we went, but that was not to be. That ended the way it did. Um, At this point, it looks like there's a couple of possible criminal cases floating around against Trump, uh, most notably out of Georgia, relating to that call to Brad Rathelsberger about finding votes. So what will end up happening with that? Who knows? But at this point, I am just super excited to never have to talk about Trump again. And he's actually been fairly quiet, like without Twitter. I mean, Twitter especially. I mean, he had Facebook, he had Instagram, but those weren't really his platforms. Twitter was his platform. And without him being on Twitter... I mean, we really haven't heard from him. And it's not like he can't release statements. He did end up releasing a statement relating to Mitch McConnell's statement after he voted to not convict Donald Trump of inciting a riot, basically saying that he feels that McConnell feels that Trump is responsible for inciting a riot. How you square those two things, I'm not entirely sure, but that he couldn't vote to convict him because he's not the president anymore and maybe this is a better matter for the federal courts or for the criminal courts and blah, 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 blah. So I guess Trump called him a political hack. I don't know because I don't have to care anymore because Trump is a private citizen and he can now go do what the fuck ever. He can go start a social media company, go start a political party, sit at Mar-a-Lago until the day he dies. I don't care because I don't have to care anymore because I don't have to hear from him anymore. Because it doesn't matter. (laughs) But he has been very, very quiet. And that has been very, very nice. Obviously, he still maintains a hold over the GOP. I don't get it. But anyway, at least he's not running his mouth on a constant basis and we don't have to care anymore. So moving on from that to this past week, I will start with the unemployment numbers as I do. For the week ending on February 13th, uh, the initial unemployment claims creeped back up to 861,000. We were having a fairly decent downtrend over the past couple of weeks, and now it's ticking back up. And 
As to why, I'm not entirely sure. But yeah, it's creeping back up again. As far as the COVID stimulus package, yep, still don't know. <laughs> um, not been a lot of movement on that. It seems like probably the biggest news at this point is Joe Biden has abandoned the idea of the $15 an hour minimum wage being a part of that bill. But as to what will be part of it or when it will be passed or when you will be seeing any more stimulus checks or any more federal unemployment, nobody quite seems to know. It's just all kind of up in the air. And for something that's supposed to be an urgent priority, there's not a lot of urgency around it. So maybe in the next week, we'll get some more news on that. Um, as it stands right now, the bill that is in front of everybody is $1.9 trillion. And the vast majority of it does not go directly to COVID-related things like vaccinations or public health. Um, there's an awful lot of funding for schools which is being done under the auspices of saying that we need this money to reopen schools. The thing is, money is not really the object right now in reopening schools. Um, teachers unions seem to be the object in opening schools. So I don't know what giving them more money is supposed to do exactly, because it seems like every time like a goalpost is set, and met. Like, first of all, it was teachers need to get vaccinated before they go into the classroom. Okay, so you move them to the front of the line. And then it's still like, nope, we're still not going back into the classroom until this other demand is met. And it's like, really? Really? What's really going on here? Because it's, it's at this point, it's really not about COVID. And it's not about the science because the science has changed now. Um, Remember when it used to be that schools could go back into session with students being three feet apart? Well, now all of a sudden it's six feet apart. And I'm not quite sure how we're squaring all of this with schools that have been open and haven't had any kind of issues with COVID. Here in Atlanta, we do have some counties that have open schools. We have some counties that have hybrid options. Um, the county I live in is completely virtual. And at the beginning, there were a couple of, of spotty cases, but now it seems like things are kind of under control. And of course, private schools have been open this whole time and they seem to have things under control. So, I mean, at this point, you can't really say the holdup is money and you can't really say the holdup is science because we have all of this empirical evidence that it, it would be fine to open schools and do Obviously, you can have masking, you can have social distancing, even if you wanted to do something like having a hybrid model where kids are in three days and off two days. There's various sorts of ways to do this, but for some reason, certain groups do not want to pursue this for reasons that I am not entirely understanding. I mean, teachers keep saying that this is so difficult doing this virtually. So it's like, okay, well, then let's go back to the classroom. But no, we can't do that either. So it's like, well, then what? Like, I don't get it. <laughs> what exactly do you want? So yeah, tons of that in the COVID stimulus bill. Money for plenty of other stuff too. But like I said, I have no idea when there's going to be a final vote on this. I have no idea when it's going to make it to Biden's desk. I have no idea when any of this is going to be implemented. So there's that. But 
on the topic of bills that have been released and that we know what is in them, uh, the Biden immigration bill dropped this past week. And I want to discuss it, not because in its current iteration, it has a snowball's chance in hell. In fact, it is already DOA because Republicans have already said, yeah, you can get bent with that shit. But there's a lot in this bill that I think is very, very good. It's an extremely ambitious bill, which is why it is DOA. But Biden himself seems to be very realistic about this process. I mean, he was there for the Obamacare fight. So he realizes that like this bill is not going to pass in this particular form, but it's an opening sort of gambit of where you would like to be. And then you negotiate from there. This is how negotiations work, obviously. So this bill is like the idealized version of what Joe Biden would like to see. He knows he's not going to, but I hope that at least some of the stuff in this bill does finally make it into a final immigration bill. Because like I said, there's a lot of really good stuff in here and I want to go over it. So let me preface this for anybody who does not know about how immigration law or the immigration system works in the United States. It is really one of the most janky, fucked up parts of the U.S. criminal justice system. And that is really saying something. So if when I am telling you about some of these proposed changes to the immigration policy in the United States, and you're wondering, well, isn't that the way it is already? Or you assumed that these things would not need to be said? Well, they do because they're not. So <laughs> the, the part of this that has gotten the most press is that this immigration bill would provide an eight-year path to citizenship for DREAMers and certain other undocumented immigrants that are already here. Now, Lindsey Graham, and I believe Dick Durbin is his co-sponsor this time around, have re-released the DREAM Act, which is the original act where the, the name DREAMers came from in the first place, which was the original plan to address people who are here in this country illegally, but they were brought here as children. And this is a very weird sort of murky situation, because when you understand the requirements of U.S. immigration law, you start to understand like the whole concept of why don't they just get in line or why don't they just get legal? Like, well, as it stands right now, there is no path for them to do that. Their window of opportunity closed years and years and years and years and years ago for them to go through the asylum process. And outside of that, there's really no other process for them to go through. And so that's why Obama did DACA. And that is why the DREAM Act exists. And that's why this is being put into this bill is to remedy this situation so that those who were brought here as children with their parents have some path to legal citizenship. Because like I said, right now, there there isn't one. Like there's nothing for them to do. So that's the part that's made the most press. Um, obviously, that would be incredibly impactful for all of those people. I mean, you're looking about roughly a million. Actually, this bill, I think is supposed to, I mean, as far as dreamers are concerned, you're looking about a couple million. I think this is supposed to cover 11 million people. So obviously it would be a big deal for those people. But digging deeper down into the bill, there are a lot of smaller, more subtle changes that would not completely fix our immigration system because it is just extremely broken. Like I cannot emphasize to you just how purposefully 
purposefully broken this system is. But there's a lot of little changes in here that could help immensely with people getting to be legal citizens of the United States, removing certain barriers, easing certain pathways that I think would be a massive, massive help. And like I said, they just don't get the top line billing because it's not a path to citizenship because that's that's the thing that garners the most press. So let's talk about some of the things deeper down in the bill. First off, this bill would change one of the criteria for deportations that people aren't aware of. Um, You can be deported over charges, not necessarily a conviction, but if you were ever charged with a crime, but that charge was never resolved for whatever reason, um, you're still going through a court case, um, they dropped the case, whatever. If you have unresolved charges, as it stands right now, that can be grounds for deportation in and of itself. This bill would remove that. You would have to have been convicted of a crime in order to be eligible for deportation. Another thing this would do is it restores the ability for judges to not recommend deportation. As it stands right now, if a judge finds an immigrant guilty of something, they have no way to kind of notate on the case that while I find this person guilty of this crime, I do not recommend they be deported. This would bring back the idea that a judge could put that kind of note on a case and say, yes, this person is guilty of whatever crime. And I mean, you could be de- you could be deported over a petty misdemeanor. Like you could be deported over stealing sunglasses. Like it's really that insane. It's really that fucking petty. But this way, a judge could say, yes, This person is guilty of stealing sunglasses. No, I do not think they should be deported over it. Which, whether ICE will take that into consideration or not, I mean, it's better than nothing. And it at least gives a judge a chance to go on record and say that I do not think this is a deportable offense as a judge. So, again, a a little something that could be potentially helpful. Uh, This bill would also ease restrictions on potential immigrants with close family members inside the United States. Basically, what this is looking at is what we call chain migration now, what used to be considered family migration. Um, Obviously, under the Trump administration, there was great pains taken to stop the idea of immigrants who are already in this country and have established a legal status of bringing in family members into this country. Which, when you think about it, is really, really stupid. It used to be, back in the day, that was considered the best, most logical, least risky way of immigrating a family to the United States. Usually it would be the men who would come here first, they would find employment, they would set up household, and then you send for the women and children and possibly the parents and whoever, because obviously that was considered to be the best way of handling it. That way, when the women and children got here, you already had a home for them. You already had stable employment. You could support your family before you brought them here versus bringing everybody here at one time and then having to risk not only having to make enough money for yourself and not only like feed and, and clothe and house yourself, but also the rest of your family, which is obviously much harder than doing that just for one person. So we're th- this bill would ease up off of restrictions on family migration, which is good. That's good. 
Another part that's gotten a lot of press is that it would remove the word alien from any kind of federal law, statute, anything like that. I mean, it's it's decorative, it's it's ornamental, but I'll take it because it's just we we've moved past using the word illegal aliens. Like these are not people from Mars. <laughs> They're not aliens. We don't use alien in that term or in that sense anymore. So it would replace alien with undocumented. Okay, I'll take that. Um, Another part of the immigration system that a lot of people don't realize is that in the visa system, say you are in India and you have a family member inside the US who already has legal status and they are petitioning for a visa for you to come over from India to the United States. I'm using India because India has a waitless time of literally decades. At one point, it was 100 years. So that's why this comes into play. Um, under this bill, if your petitioning relative passes away before your application is approved, it does not end your case. As it stands right now, if your petitioning relative dies, that's it for you. Like they're dead. So now you don't have that relative anymore. So now basically your case is closed. So like I said, when you've got countries like India, where, like I said, you can be decades, 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 decades for this process to happen for you, for you to be in line to get this visa. And there's a very good chance that your petitioning relative may pass away before your number's called. So this would address that, which again, a, a small minor change, but would make a massive difference for millions of people who are trying to get here through the visa program in the United States. So the one thing that this bill has in it that I hope, I hope makes it into whatever finalized immigration bill we get if we get one, is that it would restore the Family Case Management Program. Now, if you're not familiar, the Family Case Management Program was a pilot program that started under the Obama administration. Um, It was ended in June of 2017. You can guess why when I explain to you what the Family Case Management Program is. Uh, What it is, is that instead of putting families in incarceration or putting them in an ankle monitor program, What it does is it allows families to settle wherever it is they're going to settle. And I should back up. And like I said, this was a pilot program under the Obama administration. I believe they rolled it out in five cities. And so the idea is that the family comes here, the family settles, they they find their housing, they find jobs, they do all that. And then they're assigned basically a caseworker. This person's not a full-on lawyer, which, by the way, fun fact, um, in the U.S., Immigration offenses are considered federal criminal offenses, but unlike in the U.S. criminal justice system, um, you are not guaranteed a lawyer. There is no there's no public defender for immigration courts. So unless you have a lawyer or can hire a lawyer, you're doing this on your own outside of this particular program. So the case management program assigns somebody who basically operates as a caseworker for a particular family. And what they do is they go through, they make sure all your paperwork's being filled out right. You have all of your documentation. You know when your court dates are. You know when to show up. You're showing up. You have everything you need when you get there. You understand the process. You understand what the determination might possibly be in your case. This program had 
And it only ran for one and a half years before it was terminated by the Trump administration, or technically by ICE, but let's keep it real. We know why it was terminated. This program had a 99% compliance rate with immigration court and ICE requirements. 99% of the people in this program did exactly what they were supposed to do because they had somebody there guiding them and telling them what they're supposed to be doing, which tells you that it's not that people want to come here and live illegally. Like you want to do this legally, but like I said, this is a system that has been made purposely difficult. Like this is not a secret. This has been openly stated and it did not start with the Trump administration. The immigration system in this country is deliberately difficult to navigate to discourage people from immigrating to the United States. Like this is not a secret. What this program does is it helps people along that path of legal immigration so that they do stay compliant. They do what they're supposed to do so they have the best chance of winning their case and being in compliance and becoming legal citizens. It's a fantastic program. Like I said, the success rate is through the roof. We're talking a fraction of the money it costs to incarcerate these people versus doing the family case management program. It's much more humane. It's more economical. It's more successful. There is no reason why we should not be doing this on a national level. This is just a much, much better way of handling the situation if your goal is actually to make sure that immigration happens legally this is the path. I hope to God this gets put in somehow or another in the Biden administration, whether he wants to executive order it. I don't agree with that, but you know how I feel about Congress and immigration. They will kick the can as far as humanly possible. So I I hope this one sticks. I hope this ends up in whatever form of immigration reform we get. But to come back to the idea of legal representation in the immigration court system, this bill starts to set up a possible framework for having something like a public defender system in the immigration courts. And it mandates that children going through the immigration court system have to have a lawyer. There has to be a lawyer provided to them, which again, sounds like something that you would think if you didn't know, you would think that that is something that's happening already. It's not. And during family separation, you had literally this shit dead ass happened. I kid you not. You had courts bringing in five-year-olds to testify. What the fuck is a five-year-old supposed to know about anything as far as doing, like filling out asylum paperwork? How is a child supposed to testify to anything? Because they're five and they're not supposed to be there. Like, it's just, oh my God. Like, we, like I tell you, this is the most fucked up system in the U.S. criminal justice system. By far, it's absurd, some of the shit that happens in this. So that's another thing that I hope makes it into this. Even if it doesn't become a thing where you get like a public defender for adults, you can't have children going through a legal process without representation. Like, you, you can't do that. You can't have minors going through a court system unrepresented. That's insane. So hopefully that sticks around too. Um, another thing that this is probably, once people find out about it, is probably going to be the most controversial part of this bill, is it would eliminate the one-year deadline for asylum applications. As it stands right now, if you come into this country illegally, you cross the border, 
you have up to a year to apply for asylum. Why would you wait? Well, because like I like I said, I would not suggest anybody go through any U.S. legal process without a lawyer. And so they give you time to try to find a lawyer, to get your paperwork together, because obviously you have to, if you're applying for asylum, you have to provide evidence of your persecution. You have paperwork to fill out. You have to give testimony. It's it's like a court case. It's not simply like going to the DMV. It's it's a whole it's a whole process. So the idea is you have time to come here, get your case together, and then apply for asylum. This would remove that one year deadline to where I would assume you could do it indefinitely. Which that in and of itself may help out dreamers too, because if it becomes a situation where they can retroactively, now that they are adults, apply for asylum based off of reasons they were brought here as a child, that may also square that circle too. I'm not entirely sure. It's not super clear how that would work in practice, but that is another option for people who were brought here, like I said, when you were brought here as a minor or you came here and you weren't aware of what you're supposed to do because a lot of things in the immigration system are very time sensitive. You have to do certain things on a certain time frame, otherwise you're screwed. Like there's no mulligan, there's no do-over, there's no, oh, I didn't know, oh, can I backdate this? Can I try, can I fill out this paperwork again? Like, no, you have one shot to get this done. You have to do it in a very specific way and at a very specific time interval. And if you screw up any part of this process, you're done. That's it. And there's no, there's no refiling. Like it's, it's an extremely harsh process, which is another reason I would never suggest doing this without a lawyer. So that is that. And then the last part, which ties into asylum, is that it would, the, your employment authorization that you get when you are applying for asylum would be valid until the end of your case. As it stands right now, um, I believe, and I they did they did so much tinkering with this during the Trump administration. I think at this point they are six month authorizations, so you have to reapply every six months. And if you are going through this case with a lawyer, it could take years. I mean, between the back and forth of filing and refiling and having to provide additional documentation and then have gather this, gather that, do do your depositions it could take years. And so doing this and eliminating that sort of, that that murky gray area, because this is another way that the Trump administration fucked with asylum seekers. You remove somebody's work authorization, how are they supposed to work? Now you're either working illegally, which again, can get you deported, or you're having to figure out some other way to get money. So again, <laughs> just eliminating one 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 tiny way that the government can't fuck with you anymore. So that is that. Like I said, there's a lot of stuff in there that I really like. I mean, I know a lot of this is probably going to hit the cutting room floor, but if we can at least get that, if we can at least, at least please get family management program back in there and maybe do something about family migration and do something about legal representation for asylum seekers, for people going through the immigration courts. Okay. Okay. 
Because, <laughs> I mean, the, the pathway to citizenship, Republicans are just not going to go for it right now. They're just not. And it, it sucks. Like, you, something has to be done for these people, for dreamers. Like, I just, so, you have to figure out something to tell these people so that they know what their legal status is so that they can arrange their lives and, and go forward. Like, it's just, it's one of those things that, and I've talked about this before, I don't approve of president's executive ordering this sort of stuff. I wish Congress would do it. Congress should be doing it. I've yelled at Congress repeatedly about this. At the same time, somebody had to do something. Something had to be said. So actually, the original DACA was a DHS memo. It's not an executive order. Obama expanded it via executive order. But like I said, somebody had to do something and in the absence of Congress doing their job in just like in so many other aspects of lawmaking now, in the absence of the legislative branch doing what they're supposed to do, the executive branch is stepping in and doing the job. And it's not right. It's not how it's supposed to be. But it's just maybe one day, maybe one day Congress will do work stuff again. But Moving on from that, because I'm sure this will be much like Obamacare, that will be years long of a fight. I mean, it was, Obamacare went on for what, like a year and a half of a fight? Like it it was a long time. It wasn't short. So I'm sure we will be revisiting this immigration bill many a time over the next year, year and a half. So I want to move on to another situation that kind of blew up online this week. And that is that Facebook decided in the country of Australia that they are going to disable the sharing of news links within the country of Australia. Here's what happened, because a lot of people are misconstruing this and making it out to be something it's not. Here's what happened. Um, The country of Australia, under some undue influence by Rupert Murdoch, decided that any news links shared on any social media platform in the country, that social media platform would be responsible for paying for that, that they would be, that they would owe whatever news site that was some level of money because they are sharing their content. Now, obviously, if you live in the United States and you understand how Section 230 works, you're like, that is the dumbest shit I've ever heard in my entire life. And it is. Why Facebook should be paying anybody anything for stuff that users post on Facebook is dumb to us here in the United States. But that is the deal in Australia now. So Facebook basically decided, well, we're not going to play along. And so if that's how you want to be, fine, we'll disable sharing news links. And this is not without precedent. Um, Spain tried to do this a couple of years ago with Google News. Basically the same idea that, okay, this is your news aggregating. You're taking, you're, you're taking advertising revenue away from sites that, like if you went to the site yourself, like if you went to ABC News or CBS News or Fox News or whatever, they get 100% of the advertising revenue because you're going directly to that site. If you're going through Facebook, Facebook is taking a cut of that revenue because they're they're getting your eyeballs first and then you're moving on to the site. <laughs> so so Spain tried this shit with Google News and Google shut down Google News in Spain until they decided that, okay, clearly you will take your ball and go home. And 
it shouldn't need to be explained, but yeah, when content from your site can no longer be shared on a massive platform, that hurts you tremendously. Like, Facebook's not going to be hurt by this. Facebook doesn't really care. Like, they, they don't have to. Those news sites are going to get hammered because now you're not going to get that traffic that you were getting from being linked on Google posts or on Facebook posts in this instance. So a lot of people have lost their shit and said that this is Google engaging, or I'm sorry, not Google, Facebook. It's Facebook this time. Although the same arguments were made against Google too, that now you're engaging in censorship and, and you're you're doing the monopoly and you're like, no, no, they just decided that they are not going to operate under a punitive business model. And so they said, fuck it, we're not doing that, which they can. They absolutely can and probably should. And I don't know, those, maybe those news sites should be happy because now you get all your revenue. Or did you not think this through and realize that the hit that you are going to take to your numbers as far as clicks is going to impact your revenue? Hmm. Yeah. So, <laughs> like I said, people are trying to make this out to be something that it's not. I mean, this is I, this is on the Australian government. Like, this is you. You decided. You you thought. You thought you could do this. And to be fair, Google has actually gone into an agreement with News Corp and the Australian government to participate in this scheme. All right. That's them. They can do what they want. Facebook decided, no, I don't want to. And that, my friends, is how the market works. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> but it's like, I, people want, because everybody wants to go blue site bad. And like, I don't like Facebook. I've been incredibly, incredibly critical of Facebook and what it has done to journalism. I understand the advertising revenue argument. I have been out here bitching about the pivot to video that Facebook tricked, tricked news outlets into because they lied about the metrics. They tricked them into doing this and it caused massive layoffs when these outlets figured out that the money that they thought was there in pivoting to video wasn't because Google lied to them. Yeah, I've been incredibly critical of that. But this right here, I mean, they just decided they didn't want to do this, so they're not doing it. And that's that. <laughs> but there's just such animosity towards this, towards the tech sector right now. Um, if you missed my latest Substack, um, I wrote about the whole freak out over Clubhouse and encrypted apps in general because Signal and Telegram, while it's not getting as much light and heat as Clubhouse because Clubhouse is the trendy thing, but this idea of people being against the tech sector, of journalists being against the tech sector, and this whole idea that they kind of make the rules now. Like legacy media, I think... 2021 is going to be the year that legacy media finally figures out that Silicon Valley doesn't need them, doesn't particularly want them, and is actually kind of hostile towards them because of certain understandable reasons, like how legacy media covers tech and covers Silicon Valley and covers certain people in Silicon Valley. They feel a certain way about legacy media, and I can't say I blame them. 
but this this is just part and parcel of the demonization of Silicon Valley and of tech companies. And this is just one more offshoot of it. Oh, this is going to be such an interesting story in 2021. And nobody's really talking about it just yet. So put a pin in it and know that I told you first. But let's move on to Texas. Um, My God, I am so sorry to everybody in Texas. If you haven't noticed by now, um, and this is not just Texas, it's been really the whole eastern seaboard all the way inland to Texas has been under just extreme weather conditions. It's been really fucking cold. <laughs> and a lot of places have gotten a lot of snow. Um, I know New York City has gotten a lot of snow. Um, Here in Atlanta, it's just been cold and miserable. We didn't even get pretty snow. We just got really shitty weather. But in Texas, they had winter storms, which obviously is not a thing that happens in Texas an awful lot because it's Texas. So um, a lot of their power grid and a lot of their water grid ended up coming down because it is not built to deal with extreme cold temperatures. Um, They had their wind turbines froze up. Um, I know in a couple of their nuclear plants, uh, one of the key sensors that regulates temperature to make sure that the cores and overheating, those froze up and so it shut down the nuclear reactors. It's just been a hot mess. It has been a huge fucking mess for Texas. And there's been plenty of people on social media trying to dunk and lay blame. And to me, there's nobody to blame. Like it's just their their power grids and their water grids are just not built for this kind of weather. They're built to withstand 120 degree weather because that is much more common in Texas than zero degree weather because obvious reasons. Like you you build your power grid to withstand the conditions that it is going to be most likely tested by. And so I don't think this is any kind of massive super failure on anybody's part. It's just shit happens and this shit happens to be happening and it's really, really bad because they've got they've got people that have gone days in freezing temperatures without power. Obviously, you can die from that. People have died from that. There's been a lot of talk about how Texas deregulated their power industry or their energy industry and also how as a state, they've kind of decoupled from the national grid and how those two issues have contributed to this problem, which, okay, I will entertain that. Um, Texas can't really import power from other states because they're not on the national grid. And I'm starting to see stories because of what a lot of like energy companies did in Texas is they've tiered their pricing to rise based on demand. Obviously, demand has gone through the roof right now because there is so little power to be had in Texas that people who have managed to keep their lights on and to keep their power on are facing astronomical bills because the pricing got tiered up so high because demand rose so high. I don't know how that's going to get resolved. I... (laughs) I can't see it not getting resolved. And maybe that is something that those energy companies need to look at in the future of putting like a ceiling cap on how high you can charge per kilowatt. There's going to be a lot going on after this with energy policy in Texas. How this will end up, I don't know. But what we do know is that one particular senator from Texas, um... (laughs) I don't, I do not know 
why people don't do optics anymore or why you think in the year 2021, this is a thing you can do and nobody's going to find out. But Ted Cruz and his family uh, decided to decamp for Cabo down in Mexico for an indeterminate amount of time because Texas is freezing and crappy. Um, <laughs> obviously, this has caused a lot of backlash because, uh, dude, optics, optics, my friends. But the whole story is, <laughs> this is another instance of how the lie or the cover-up is worse than the original story. So it was originally, and again, this was originally reported because people saw Ted Cruz at the freaking airport. They saw him in the lounge. They saw him on the plane. Like, are you kidding me, dude? Like, of course people are going to take pictures and post it on the internet. Like, are you stupid? So that's how this whole story kicked off. Um, Ted Cruz... <laughs> in Ted Cruz fashion, decided to um, try to blame this on his daughters by saying that he had to go to Cabo and his wife because his daughters were out of school and they wanted to go to Cabo. And so we have to go to Cabo because my daughters. Um, yeah, that's not exactly what happened. <laughs> and, and the other cover-up lie part of this was that he tried to say like, oh, I was just accompanying them down to Cabo and then I was going to turn around and fly back, which who the fuck does that? Who does that? Nobody. Nobody does that. And it was proven to be a lie because somebody released the fact that Ted Cruz rebooked his ticket. He originally went down on Wednesday and then he came back on Thursday. He was not originally scheduled to come back on Thursday. He rebooked that flight. So he was planning to stay down in Cabo with his family. Okay. Here's the thing. If you want to send your wife and children someplace other than Texas because Texas is not so great right now, cool, fine. I can understand that. Send them to Cabo. Who cares? Of course, you want your wife and children to not be freezing. You want them to be someplace with power and, you know, water and basic human necessities. That is absolutely understandable. But you are the senator from Texas, sir. You don't get to go with them. You stay your ass in Texas and you help out your constituents. And everybody wanted to make the point of, well, it doesn't matter because he can't do anything. I'm like, of course he can do something. He's a senator from Texas. He could have stayed in Texas and helped coordinate with Governor Greg Abbott to get in touch with Biden to start the process of getting some kind of federal relief in there. He could humble himself and put it out there that I am here for anybody who wishes for me to come help them in any way that I possibly can because I am the senator from Texas and I am Ted Cruz and I can draw attention to whatever it is you need me to draw attention to if you need me to come help you with whatever. Because that's your job. You're a public servant. You're supposed to be helping your constituents. You don't go to fucking Cabo. And you don't make up a dumbass lie about why you went to Cabo. Just like, how stupid of a human being do you have to be? Just, I don't, I don't get this. Like, this is something I've been thinking about a lot. Especially in regards to kind of thinking more broadly about the attitudes between the quote-unquote elites and the quote-unquote public. Like, that barrier has been broken down so much, but I think there's still some people who don't quite get it 
and they do dumb shit like this because you don't really understand that you will be immediately held to consequences for doing so because you will be immediately found out. Like, did Ted Cruz think that he could go spend a week in Cabo and nobody find out? Like, I'm baffled by this. I don't, I don't get it. And like I said, if you want to send your wife and kids somewhere, go ahead. You can send them, send them to DC, send them to Cabo, send them, send them wherever, send them someplace where they can be warm and safe. Cool. But you don't go. Like what, like what, what, what kind of brain worms do you have where you think that's a good idea? So of course he had to come slinking back on Thursday and make up a bunch of dumbass excuses for why he went in the first place, which <laughs> Heidi Cruz is a perfectly competent, capable human being. She can fly to Cabo all by herself with their kids. Didn't really need an escort. Yeah. So <laughs> not that Ted Cruz will face any kind of lasting repercussions from this. And I I point that out to bookend Ted Cruz and Andrew Cuomo as two politicians who have acted in absolute fucking jerk fashion, but will likely face no consequences for their jerk actions. Because here's the thing with Cuomo now. It has come out over the past couple of weeks that the original numbers that his administration released as far as COVID deaths in nursing nursing homes um, was a little low. In fact, it was a lot low. Um, apparently, it's actually more than double what they reported. Um, at this point, we are at over 15,000 nursing home deaths in New York because Cuomo told the hospitals, I shit you not, again, with shit, shit ideas that who thought this up? He told hospitals that nursing home patients that were admitted to hospitals with COVID had to be sent back to nursing homes. What kind of dumbass do you have to be to send anybody who has been diagnosed with COVID, no matter what their age, back into a group living situation? What kind of fucking stupid are you? Like, of course, what happened happened. Of course, COVID ripped through nursing homes in New York. How could it not? Have you people ever been to a nursing home? Like these are, these are communal living. Like everybody has their own room, but the vast majority of their day is spent outside the room socializing with each other because that's the point. That is the whole point. So obviously got caught in a bit of a lie. Um, the excuse has been that, well, we didn't want the real number being weaponized in any kind of investigation or for more to the point, didn't want it being weaponized by Trump. So at this point, we now have the FBI investigating, um, the Brooklyn DA's office is investigating this. Who Lord. <laughs> Again, what's going to come of that? I don't know. I'm very curious that the FBI is investigating it, but what's really taken me aback has been the response from Cuomo and from people who want to defend his actions and defend this number. And that is this whole idea that, well, they were old, they were going to die, and they died. And so what's the big deal? All right. I was told 
several times that the worst thing you could possibly do right now is do anything that might result in killing grandma. 15,000 elderly people in nursing homes dead. That's a hell of a lot more people that I could possibly kill by not wearing a mask in public. But this dude, this dude gets a fucking pass. And people want to be like, well, they were old and, and they died. Who cares? Um, I'm pretty sure everybody who lost a loved one in New York in a nursing home cares. I'm pretty sure if you have somebody who died of COVID in a New York nursing home, you are pissed right now. And you should be. Because that's insane. And what the fuck is this callousness? That was somebody's loved one, you know? Those were people's parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles. That's, those are people. And they died. Because this dumbass made a dumb decision and you want to sit here and co-sign it and try to explain it away by saying, well, they were old? Well, fuck you. The whole point of everything we've been doing over the past year has been because we need to protect the old people. That was how it was sold. We have to protect the olds. We have to vaccinate the olds first. We have to mask up. We have to sanitize. We have to do everything because we have to protect the old people because they are the most vulnerable and they're the ones that are going to die from COVID if they catch it. That's how this was sold. So no, you don't get to walk this shit back. Mm -mm. You don't get to sit here and say, well, they were old and they caught COVID and they died and who cares? Everybody, everybody cares. Everybody should care because this is egregious. And on the topic of egregiousness and of possible consequences that Cuomo might face, um, New York Republicans have already started to form an impeachment committee for the sake of impeaching Cuomo, because obviously Cuomo is not going to resign. And there is no recall process for governors the way there is in California and other states. So the only way to get rid of Cuomo before 2022, fingers crossed, would be to impeach him. So here's the thing. As it stands right now in the New York State Assembly, you would need 32 Democrats to sign on to this. And then in the state Senate, you would need 12 Democrats to sign on to this. It sounds insurmountable at this particular moment in time, but let me let me temper that. There are a lot of Democrats, a lot of Democrats in the, the state assembly who are agitating for Cuomo to have his emergency power stripped away on the basis of this. There's a lot of anger, a lot of anger towards Cuomo coming from actual quadrants where there could be people that would cause him to face some kind of consequence for this. So while those numbers, the 32 and 12, look insurmountable, I don't know if they really are. I I think Republicans could pull that off. And so what would happen if they did is then they, they make the impeachment committee, they have 60 days to do an investigation, and then they would, I guess, bring the results of their investigation and then go from there. So there is movement within the New York State Assembly, the New York State state senate to do something about this to actually impeach andrew cuomo which he deserves it i'm sorry like i don't i've never understood this shit i've never understood why this dude gets a pass and he gets well no i do understand it it's the same reason why republicans want to give trump a pass because you want this dude for some for some godforsaken reason i don't understand why democrats want cuomo any more than i understand why the gop wants trump i don't get it 
Like, this is not the dude that you should be pursuing. There's better options. This guy is a fucking dickhead. Like, half of the spring and summer were spent between Cuomo and de Blasio fighting with each other over what was going to be allowed in New York City because they don't like each other. Like, are you kidding me? This guy's a fucking jerk. Like, why do you, why? Why do these political parties want to hitch their wagons to assholes? I don't get it. I do not understand it. But Democrats writ large want to give Cuomo a pass for how shitty he has actually done managing COVID in New York because you're invested in this narrative that he did such a great job and that other governors like Ron DeSantis down in Florida did a shitty job. The numbers don't bear this out. Like Florida seems to be doing okay. Like, not great, but okay. And they didn't do the lockdowns. They're still in school. They, they, they're still doing mostly normal activities. And New York has not been doing that. And, you know, you got shit like this. I, I don't, I don't get it. it. It's just, again, it's just investing in a narrative and investing in a particular person, which I thought Democrats learned their lesson with Obama as far as Hitching your party to a person versus a set of policies, because that person's going to fail you eventually. All politicians will fail you eventually. Certain exclusions apply, but under normal circumstances, they're going to fail you. And so then you have to own that failure because you decided that it was more important to promote that one person than it was to promote a specific ideology or a specific set of policy positions. Like they... Like, Democrats did this with, with Obama, and then they were, like, all lost without him. Republicans are doing it with Trump, and then they're going to be all lost without him. And so Democrats are just going to do it again with Cuomo? Like, nobody learns anything. Nobody learned anything. Nobody learns. Nothing. Nothing was learned. Damn it. But whether, whether Cuomo gets impeached or not, it, it seems like there's support for it and for what it is worth, as much as the national media has just given Cuomo an absolute tongue bath, New York City press has savaged him, which New York City press savages everybody, but they have been especially hard on him. So there has been reporting on how bad he has done, but it's not nationwide. And, of course, you had the stupid shit with him and Chris Cuomo and this fucking swabs and the the, the, the love gov thing, which, oh, who, who said that this man was sexy? I, I know. I've got questions for all y'all. And, and I'm somebody who actually likes my men older. This dude is not sexy. <laughs> what was this? Oh, my God. It was oh so weird. So fucking weird. But. We shall see if he faces any consequences. And that pretty much brings us to the end of this particular week. Like I said, it was nice to not really have to talk about Trump. We can talk about other things like policy. We got to talk about policy. I've been waiting. I'm happy. So at this point, I will go ahead and wrap this up because this one has gone kind of long. So if you did make it this far, thank you for listening. And if you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Substack page. Take care and until next time.